Welcome to Nostrum, the debate soap opera, where deontology is more than just an idea, it's a rebuttal by Jules O'Shaughnessy and the Nostrumite. Before we get going, we do like to remind you that just as Jules and the Nostromite began writing these episodes at the beginning, you should begin listening at the beginning. All of our previous episodes are available at www.jimmenick.com. This is going to get really complicated for you real-timers. The unreal-timers, presumably, will start listening to this series of installments sometime in the year 2014, and there will be a beginning and a middle, and, of course, there really is no end. But anyhow, it'll just go, and they'll never really lose track of where they are, whereas you real-timers are sort of stuck trying to remember what happened when. I'll give you a couple of reminders before we get going. First of all, there's the round Robinskis. There's a round robin that takes place before the original Veganza. The round Robinskis like to do the conga. Okay, we have the the nascent love affair, and I hate to call it a love affair, but I don't know what else to call it, between Amnia Nut Milk and Tarnish Jutmal, not to mention the nascent love affair between Lisa Tort and Invoice O'Connor. And, of course, in the background, we have Seth B. Obamash, who is making his public reappearance at the original Veganza. That's the thing about big national tournaments. Anything can and will happen, especially in a four-parter like episode 64. Part 1, God's a-poppin'. The moment has arrived. The Manhattan Lodestone Original Veganza, or other Veganzas are extra, is ready to set sail, beginning now with the Tuesday night round robin at the Hunted Enchanters Motel. At 6.30, a half hour before the first round is scheduled, all preparations are completed. A schematic of the next three evenings is printed out, with each debater hitting each other debater, two double-flighted rounds a night, three judges hearing each round. Whoever takes the most ballots by the end is the winner to be announced on Thursday night. Kalima Milak is sitting behind the registration table in a corridor on the second floor, a list of debaters and judges, and a pile of blank ballots in front of her. Lodestone policy debater Peter Stallone is sitting beside her to provide whatever assistance she demands. Three lodestone freshmen are arranging crudités and petty four in the small conference room designated as the judges' lounge, and in the center of the corridor, his wheelchair freshly polished and battery fully charged, is the reigning debate god of Manhattan lodestone, the inimitable Mr. Lopat. The March of the Divinities is about to begin. They enter 
at the beginning, one at a time, with their charges in tow. A Texan debate god is the first to come up the escalator, a wizened little woman not much taller than the seated Mr. Lopat, talking to a round Rubinsky in a dress the color of a St. Patrick's Day carnation. As soon as the coach spots Mr. Lopat, she walks over to him to exchange Icor or Nepenthe, or whatever it is the gods exchange with each other in their traditional greeting. Next comes an Iowan debate god, a stately woman with a rather strong resemblance to Oscar Wilde in his last years, leading a thickly wet-headed debater in a brown suit. She too drops her teenager behind her and walks over to make mutual obeisance noises with Mr. Lopat. Next, two Floridian gods come in with a pair of Floridian debaters. Florida is a big enough debate state to warrant two round Rabinskys. They too make a beeline for Mr. Lopat. Within the next few minutes, the joint is lousy with debate gods, all talking to each other a mile a minute, while the round Rabinskys huddle together on the other side of the hallway doing likewise. The conductor taps his baton. The orchestra looks up. The March of the Divinities to the tune of Elgar's pomp and circumstance. Do, 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 do. So good to see you again. Where were you at the Messerschmitt? How was your institute this summer? From the other side of the room, the small jazz ensemble counts down, and one, and two, the round Rubinsky conga, to any Carmen Miranda beat, do, 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 kick, what do you think of the topic, kick, early admission to Harvard, kick, 1600 on the college boards, kick, and I do interrupt. When this was written, you had to get a 1600 on the college boards, those were the days, anyhow. Kalima Millak, sitting with Peter Stallone behind the registration table, signing people in as they eventually break away from the amenities to get down to business, watches this convergence of debate gods and round Rabinskys with but a single thought. Not one of the people in this room actually likes any of the other people. In fact, without exception, they positively detest each other. The debaters come up against each other virtually every weekend and are the banes of one another's existence. Each coach is in full possession of the belief that he or she is the singular best coach in the country, and the very existence of the other coaches is a threat to the conceptual construct. Yet they fawn over each other like supermodels air-kissing at a Paris fashion show. Bunch of phonies from the get-go, she mutters to Peter at the first opportunity. He shrugs. Oh, dears, he says, what do you expect? You think policy's any better, she says menacingly. Peter quickly shakes his head. He doesn't want any of his body parts added to Kalima's collection. No, 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 just different, different phonies. She nods, satisfied. Bunch of phonies from the get-go, she repeats. Part 2. The Old Dogs Network At 6.30, Tarnish Jutmal is waiting outside the front doors of the Hunted Enchanter's Motel, his trench coat securely buttoned against the chilly autumn wind. 
On the top of his gray head is a perky little Tyrolean hat that gives him the look of a cartoon professor on leave from his Alpine Institute, or perhaps an escapee from Thomas Mann's Magic Berghoff. He is waiting, patiently, expectantly. He feels like a teenager. At 6.45, Amnia Nutmilk appears, trotting up the steps to join him. She is the soul of Sheik, dressed in a long black coat, beneath which Jutmal can see dark stockings on fairly shapely calves. They do say the legs are the last thing to go, tarnish you old dog, you. Amnia, he says. Tarnish. Not knowing what to do next, he extends his hand, and she takes it in hers. Have you been waiting long, she asks. Only a minute or two. I thought I might be late, but I had no way of reaching you to tell you. Things were crazy in the office today. I can imagine, he says. Although, he can't. The idea of being the editor of Metro New York is completely beyond his personal experience. Why do they hold it here, not in the school, she asks him. This is the tournament hotel, Jumpmall explains. Probably all of the participants are staying here, and it makes life much more pleasant for everyone. But the school isn't that far away, she says, as Jutmal holds the hotel door open for her. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I haven't been there in ages. That's right, Jutmal says. Chesney was a student there for a while. I'd forgotten. He started out as a great debater. He still is a great debater. Once inside the building, the two of them find the escalator to the second floor where the March of the Divinities and the Round Rabinsky Conga are in full swing. This is it? Amnia asks. This is where it starts, Jamal says. He quickly collects a schematic and a pair of ballots from Kalima's table. Then he and Amnia stand together off to the side. Who are all these people? Amnia asks. Most of the adults are national circuit coaches, the coaches of the round-robin debaters, who are obviously the kids in the suits. The conga and the march have been augmented by various non-dancers. Exactly. The grungy-looking kids are the college students. They come to collect $25 a round from Mr. Lopat for judging. I don't recognize anyone, Amnia says. You're new here. You'll get to know them eventually. He holds up his schematic. I'm only judging the first round, he says. Ready? Lay on, Macduff. He takes her elbow and leads her down the corridor towards the small conference room in which they will hear the round. As they start walking, his hand drops, and he is surprised a moment later when she takes his arm. He says nothing as they stroll down the corridor like the lord and his lady leading the grand procession to the palace ball. Tarnish, you old dog, you. Part 3, Old Trick Young Pup Division Good old original Vaganza, Lisa Tort says to Invoice O'Connor as they walk up the steps to the motel. Seems like only a week ago that I was working for Manhattan Lodestone. It was only a week ago, Invoice says. Quad erat demonstratum. She smiles as he holds the door open for her. How genteel. Thank you. The march and the conga are still in full swing when they arrive on the second floor. 
Lisa is hoping to quickly grab her ballots, but Mr. Lopat has a never-failing radar system that would take Tom Clancy's six chapters to explain, but which we can simply assign as another factor of debate divinity. He whirs across to her as she is leaning over Kalima to find her name on the schematic taped to the table. Miss Tort, he says to her. His voice fills the hallway, but no one other than Lisa and Invoice pay any attention to it. All debate gods are capable of drowning a moose with their vocal equipment and think nothing of it when another of their number demonstrates this ability as long as it isn't directed at them. Hello, Mr. Lopat. You do remember your promise to me, don't you? Promise? To assist me in running the Vacanza. I'm counting on your help, of course. She nods, clearly uninterested in the prospect, but just as clearly committed to upholding her part of any bargain she has made. I'll do whatever you want, she says. I was hoping you'd handle the judge sign-up on Friday to begin with. She nods again. Of course. Excellent. And we'll find plenty for you to do after that, I'm sure. I'm sure, too, she agrees. Satisfied, Mr. Lopat looks up at Lisa's companion. Good evening, Mr. O'Connor. Has Veil of Ignorance policy come out to witness Lincoln Douglas tonight? Hello, Mr. Lopat. I'm just checking it out. Invoice is not surprised that Mr. Lopat recognizes him. Mr. Lopat recognizes everybody, and Invoice is not a stranger to tournament award ceremonies. Don't let it go to your head, Mr. Lopat says. Or do as the case may be. He whirs off to make contact with the next on his list of divinities. It would not do to let any god go unacknowledged. What was that all about you helping with the Veganza? Invoice O'Connor asks as Mr. Lopat disappears into the now thinning crowd. It is nearly time for the first round to begin. Just Mr. Lopat extracting his pound of flesh, Lisa says. She takes Invoice's arm. Let's go to it, she says. Round one awaits us. You are about to lose your L.D. virginity. Invoice O'Connor's round face turns fiery red. Lisa's touch combined with her use of the word virginity is a bit more than he can handle at one time. You young pup, you. Part four, and this has to be one of my favorite Nostrum titles. He comes in nightly like a butte. The city is changing its soul. The day is becoming night, and the hive of work is turning into a hive of play, of sleep, and of sin. It is the time that Seth B. Obamash feels at home, but not tonight. He is standing in the doorway of a closed delicatessen. Inside, a counterman is doggedly cleaning up so that he can turn off the last light and get home himself. He looks out occasionally at the large black man outside, but accepts that the man has no business here and goes about his own business. The sooner he is finished, the sooner he is out of here. An army of black giants eating pretzels, as this one is, wouldn't stop him. Seth looks at his watch again. Five minutes to seven. He pulls another pretzel out of the bag. It was one thing talking to Mr. Lopat about coming it is another thing altogether to be here. He has not shown his face in forensic circles since what he has come to term the incident. 
Is he doing the right thing to do so now? He has no idea. The last few weeks have been hell for him. Being suspended by veil was bad enough, but they are being so circumspect about it that he knows that he will eventually be able to teach again somewhere, but not in the diocese and probably not in any Catholic school in the Western Hemisphere. But he will teach again. His infraction against the moral law was not so great that his livelihood is in jeopardy. But what is his livelihood? Is it teaching or is it forensics? For Seth B. Obamash, the question is surprisingly easy to answer. Teaching is in his head. Forensics is in his soul. It's no contest. Why? He asks himself this over and over, spending every weekend with teenagers, traveling on buses for endless hours, living on junk food, carrying the standard of a specialized activity that no one on the outside understands, which if it disappeared tomorrow, no one on the outside would miss it, while everyone on the inside, the minute they're deprived of it, they are no longer whole. What is this thing called forensics? What incredibly strong hold does it have on its participants? If Seth B. Obamash understood that, he would be the master of his own domain, but instead he is a slave to forensics, or more specifically, a slave to debate. He is slinking around in the dark tonight, judging Lincoln Douglas just to get a fix. There's a monkey on his back. He takes out another pretzel. He can't postpone it any longer. He takes a deep breath, pulls himself up straight, and crosses the street toward the enchanted hunters. He has watched all the debate gods and the round Rabinskys gather. The coast should be clear. It is. He enters the building and rides up the escalator, and only Kalima Milak and Peter Stallone are in view, sitting behind the ballot table. Suddenly, Mr. Lopat is whirring up beside him. Good evening, Mr. Obamash. Hello. Obamash's usually booming voice is barely a whimper. Your ballots are ready, Mr. Lopat points towards the table. I was beginning to think you might not make it. I'm here. Obamash says. Mr. Lopat looks up into Seth's eyes. Seth doesn't know what there is to be seen there, but the little man in the wheelchair extends his hand, and Seth takes it in his. Good luck, Seth, Mr. Lopat says with unusual warmth. Thank you, Obamash responds. I'm going to need it. Mr. Lopat nods. You certainly are, Seth. You certainly are. Do debaters and their divinities really like to dance? Will Amnia Nutmilk do the two-step with tarnished Jutmal? What kind of march does Invoice O'Connor have in mind? Will Seth B. Obamash bring in Denoise and Defunk to the original Veganza? Find out nothing in our next episode, Tofu. Fubar fo food or nosh for posh poobahs. <laughs>